invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. We'll begin reading in the first verse. They went each to his own house, but just Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that through your Spirit, you would open up your Word and you would speak to us. Breathe life into us. Where there needs to be conviction, may you convict. Where there needs to be healing, heal. But have your way in our midst. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain. And may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Before we dig into this text, I, I need to address something that you probably noticed as we were reading through it, and that's that many of uh, the Bibles that you have have this story in double brackets. They're bookended with double brackets, or perhaps you have a footnote to it saying that this text is not in the oldest manuscripts, and that is absolutely true. Uh, this is not in the oldest manuscripts of the Bible. The evidence for this is actually pretty overwhelming that the story we just read is not original to the Gospel of John. Actually, in some of the older manuscripts of the Bible we have, this story was placed in the Gospel of Luke, uh, which when you read it, it's, it feels more Lukean than it does like belonging in the Gospel of John. And also in some of the, the Gospels of John we have, it's, it's spread throughout. Sometimes the story is found at the end of the Gospel, sometimes midway through the Gospel. Most commonly, it is found here. And what happened? This story was likely circulating very early within church history. Um, it was well known, and it was placed here in the Gospel. Um, I've decided to preach on this text, even though it is not an original part of John's gospel, because it was accepted in the early church so early. It was accepted as authentic, and it was accepted to be true. 
Uh, scholars that I respect, people like D.A. Carson, if you're familiar with him, or Bruce Metzger, um, all of them agree that this story is true and belongs in the canon of Scripture. I even looked and I read through a number of secular scholars, and even they say this story likely happened and is authentic. It reads like an eyewitness account. We'll look at this a little bit later. It reads like a, an eyewitness account, and it, it only reinforces what Jesus has already taught. There's no new theology here, so there's nothing new from this. It simply is going to anchor in what we already know. So that, that's why this story is in brackets in your Bible, and it's also why I've decided to teach on it. I do believe it belongs in our canon of Scripture. And, and I love this story. I really do. I love the story. It's, it's the perfect blend of, of truth and grace. Even non-Christians know this story. It's very familiar. In some ways, that actually kind of hurts us as we're trying to study this because it is so familiar. But how many of you have ever heard this from a non-Christian quoted? Hey, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And by this, usually what is meant is, hey, who are you to judge me? How, who made you judge? Why should you determine what is right or wrong? Come on, live and let live. Let's just do whatever we want. And that's often how this text is understood, especially in our culture and the views we have on sexual morality. Yet I want you to notice here that Jesus recognizes that adultery, what this woman has done, is wrong. He, he calls it a sin. He, he calls her to repentance. He says, go and sin no more. Now, when is the last time that you've heard somebody quoting this passage? Hey, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And then they follow it up with, and remember, Jesus said, we are to sin no more. Most people never get that far in this story. And I, I want us to, to look at this story as a whole so we can figure out what Jesus meant. And it's important to do so because I think that there are two camps in religious circles, two camps. There's, there's a camp over here that is, you know, God is just, he is a God of love. He doesn't judge anybody. He doesn't look down on sin. He just, you could do whatever you want to do. And the important thing is God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And then there's a camp over here that says, God wants you to live this way. These things are wrong and you need to not do them. There is a law here. So, so where does this story fall within those two religious camps? What does Jesus have to say about this? Let's dig into the text. I think the early church placed this story here because as we've been going through the Gospel of John, if you remember, people are trying to kill Jesus. And this is an example of how they try to trap him and kill him. This is a, a trap that is set for Jesus, and it's a, it's a pretty good one. Jesus is teaching in the temple in a a group of scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus and they bring to him a woman who has been caught in the very act of adultery. There's no doubt about her guilt. She is guilty. The only question is, 
What should they do now? What should her punishment be? The scribes and the Pharisees, they remind Jesus of the law of Moses. And they say, you know, Moses commands that a person who does this needs to be executed. And they're absolutely right. This is what the law of Moses says in Deuteronomy 22 and Leviticus 20. Both clearly establish the death penalty for anybody who commits adultery. So what is Jesus supposed to say here? I mean, the the Pharisees and the scribes, they've heard Jesus talk about how he honors the law, how he respects the law. He even said that uh, not a jot or a tittle is going to fall away from the law of Moses. But then they also heard Jesus telling sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes to, to come to him. Come to me, I'll give you rest. And so they've heard Jesus speak with such compassion. And so what is Jesus supposed to do here? Is he, is he supposed to keep the law of Moses and have this woman killed? Or is he supposed to have compassion and say, come to me? Like I said, this is a, it's a trap and it's a really good trap for Jesus. I love Jesus' response. Um, He bends over and just starts writing in the dirt. That's his response. I mean, you read this and you're like, what in the the world's going on here? Just kind of as an aside, let me say that's, uh, details like this is one of the things that speaks to the authenticity of this story because this little detail adds absolutely nothing to the plot line. (laughs) It adds nothing to the story. Uh, We have no idea what Jesus was writing. We have no idea why he was writing it. Um, There's no reason at all to put that detail in here other than somebody saw him do it and wrote about it. This, This is well before, it's 1,800 years before the whole literary device of having realistic fiction in which you could you would include little details like this to make something real they didn't write like this in this day they recorded this because it happened so jesus apparently he 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 wrote in the dirt for for a time for a while because it says that the scribes and the pharisees have to keep asking him the question i I want you to picture the scene you have You have this woman, she is possibly half-dressed. She has been ripped from her bed in the middle of doing an immoral act. She has been placed in the middle of the temple where she is surrounded by the conservative religious right all around her. And these men are now asking Jesus what they should do. Should they kill her or not? It's a tense moment, and, and, and Jesus just begins writing in the sand. That's how he responds, that he's just, he's just writing in the sand. I mean, can you imagine the tension that's here? This woman, she's, she's looking, she's waiting. Her life literally hangs in the balance on Jesus' words, and he is just doodling. The Pharisees and the scribes are waiting, and he's just doodling. The crowd is waiting, and he's just still drawing in the sand. And so the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, they say, so what's it going to be, Jesus? And he keeps writing. Come on, answer us, Jesus. Give us an answer. Should we kill her or not? 
Jesus keeps writing. They keep asking and they keep asking until finally the tension is at this unbearable breaking point. And Jesus responds. Let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This is a brilliant answer. It's brilliant. Jesus does not say here, do not throw any stones. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, this woman does not deserve to be punished. We'll see later. He actually thinks she she deserves to be punished. What Jesus is doing here is, is he's disqualifying these witnesses who have come forward. These self-appointed judges, this self-appointed jury in this case, he is disqualifying them. He actually agrees that this woman needs to be punished, but he sees the terrible hypocrisy of these people, and he says, you are not fit to dish this out. I think Jesus is really angry here. An obvious question, if you just take a step back and you're reading this, an obvious question you have to ask is, where is the man? Where's the man? It takes two to tango. Where's where's he at? These religious leaders, they, they remind Jesus that the law demands that this woman is to be executed. But this same law demands that the man be executed as well. They're reminding Jesus of the law like he needs reminding of the law. And he's thinking, yes, I know Deuteronomy 22. And it says that if a man lies with another man's wife, they both should die. Then it goes on to say, even if the woman is not married to him, if she is just betrothed to him, if they are just engaged, and she commits adultery, They're both to be taken out of the city gates and stoned to death. So so why is it that the man was not dragged out here with the woman? Did he he just sneak out really fast and now there's some some naked man running through the streets of Jerusalem? They just couldn't get him? No, it's, it's obvious that this woman was set up. She was set up. It was extremely hard in this day under Jewish law to execute anyone. The death penalty was such a rare thing that if you read through the Mishnah, which is the, the oral law that the Pharisees kept, if you read through this, at one point they say, if a court executes more than one person every seven years, that court is considered a slaughterhouse and does not have any righteous judgment. It's hard to execute someone. There there had to be a watertight case against somebody, and that's next to impossible in the case of adultery. Because you would need two witnesses with impeccable character, and they would have to actually catch this adulterous couple in the act. And adultery is not something you usually do in broad daylight. But somehow two witnesses, impeccable witnesses, would have to catch these people in the act. And then even when these witnesses were testifying against them, if they disagreed even on one detail, it would be thrown out of court. 
And I read one of the cases in which they could not agree on the color of the robe that was on the ground. And so case dismissed. And so Jesus, he knows this. And he's thinking, well, because of the near impossibility of actually having two righteous witnesses witness what happened there. And because there's no man that was brought before him, Jesus knows that this is a setup. It's entrapment in order to trap him. This woman was set up so they could lay a snare for Jesus. It's possible that the man who was involved in this was likely even there amongst this group of scribes and Pharisees. These people, they they didn't care about justice. They didn't care about the law. They only wanted to discredit Jesus. and, And they were willing to go to any extreme, do whatever is necessary to discredit him. And when Jesus sees all of this unfolding before him, he gets angry. And he stoops down and he begins writing in the dirt. Perhaps he wrote down Deuteronomy 22. Where's the man? A lot of church fathers, they they would write about this and they'd speculate. And many of them think that he was writing down the sins of the Pharisees and the sins of the scribes. Bottom line is we, we really don't know what he said or what he wrote. We only know what he said. And that is let he who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Because of what y'all did, y'all are disqualified from being the judge and the jury. Now I want you to hear me. Jesus is not... He's not saying here that one has to be perfect in order to cast judgment on somebody. That's often how this verse is quoted, um, and it's a misunderstanding. That's not what's meant here. It's not even what is implied here. Because we, as sinners, cast judgment rightly on things all of the time. For instance, you know, 1963, the... KKK bombed a church that's not too far from here, killed four little girls. Even though we are all sinners, we will all say that was wrong. All of us say that's wrong. Nobody here is going to say, well, you know, we we weren't really there. No, they were just a victim of the times. We're not going to say that. We know it was wrong. Even though we are sinful people, we justly and we rightly can call some things evil. When Jesus said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to cast a stone, he is saying, let him who is without sin in this matter before us, in this matter, be the first to cast a stone. And so he's looking at these scribes and he's looking at these Pharisees and he says, none of you are innocent. None of you are innocent in what is taking place here. Where's the man? How did you catch her? It makes me sick what you guys did, bringing her here like this. He's looking at him, and he's thinking, you're all as guilty as she is. I disqualify you. You know, Jesus, he actually had taught his disciples to judge people. Once again, as sinners, we still have a right to judge people. But what he said is, first, you need to remove the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly to remove the speck that's in another's. 
These Pharisees and scribes have this huge log in their eye that disqualifies them from removing the speck in in this lady's eye. After Jesus says this, I love it. He once again stoops down and begins writing in the sand. Why? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. It's just bizarre. Who knows what he is doing, but once again, it does heighten the drama here. And one by one, these accusers begin dropping their stones. I love verse 9. It adds this little detail. It says, beginning with the older ones, they left one by one. Um, And I would just say, as you get older, I think you understand that more. Because, I I mean, I picture the, the older people who have more experience in life, and they're ready to stone. Jesus says these words, and they're like, you got us. You got us. You know, they throw it down and, uh, and they see the situation for what it is and they, they walk away. But you have the, the younger ones who be like, oh no, he didn't get us. We, we can do this. All right, that won't work. Well, what if we try? No, that's not going to work. Ah, and then finally they throw their rocks down and they leave last. It's recorded like this because it happened. It happened. Finally, they all leave, and it is just Jesus and this woman. Picture once again, this woman has been dragged, likely half-dressed, in the middle of the most sacred place in Jerusalem. She's surrounded by righteous-looking people, people in their suits and their nice dresses and their perfect children there, going to the temple to pray And here she is utterly exposed. I mean, she is exposed in every sense of the word. Everyone knows who she is. Everybody knows what she has done. The the secret sin that, that she did, that she thought nobody would know about, has now been dragged out in front of the public and everybody could see it. I mean, what's she supposed to do now? Where's she supposed to go? Just go home? Everybody knows what she has done. This this woman had to be devastated. She's exposed. And let me just say that this is actually a tremendous grace to her. It's a hard grace, but this is actually a tremendous grace to her. Because God is going to use that painful exposure in her life to give life-giving grace to her. Let's see how Jesus responds. Look at verse 10. Jesus stood up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. Jesus does not run up to her and just go, oh, you, you poor little woman. How terrible it was that they, they treated you this way and you know, give her a hug and just say, everything's going to be okay, everything's fine now. I don't find you guilty. You're free to go. Jesus doesn't do that. 
Because Jesus knows this woman is guilty. She has committed adultery. What she did was wrong. It might have been entrapment, but she still did it. And so he tells her that she needs to stop sinning. She needs to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, please notice the order in which Jesus says these things. Jesus does not say to her, you need to stop sinning and then I will not condemn you. That's not what Jesus says. Instead, he says, I do not condemn you. Now stop sinning. And the order of this is huge because one is the law and the other is grace. The law says, stop sinning. Put on some clothes for heaven's sake. Quit looking at porn. Quit lying. Quit cheating. Quit gossiping. Get your, get your act together. And when you, when you do that and you come clean, I'll take you in. I'll let bygones be bygones and I will not judge you. That's what the law says. And that's how we naturally think about God. It's the default of our human hearts to think of God this way and this is how he relates to us. It's probably how a number of us here think of Christianity. But I want you to hear that this is not how the God of the Bible relates to us. Jesus comes to us and he comes to us in our shame And he first speaks words of love and grace to us. And he says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. And then it's after he speaks these words of love and these words of grace that Jesus then says, because I love you, now you need to quit sinning. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, your hearts are evil but I don't condemn you because I love you and I love you so much, I want you to turn away from your sin and turn to me. You see, true love does not leave a person in their sins. God loves us so much, he not only forgives our sins, he will not leave us in our sins because our sin will destroy us. No matter how fun you think sin is, it will destroy you. And God will not let us live that destructive lifestyle. From the very first pages of the Bible, back in the garden, sin brought death, and sin still brings death to us. Hear me, we looked at this months ago. Jesus is not your personal cheerleader, which I think is how a lot of us view Jesus, in which we kind of go through life, and he's just the accepting Jesus. He's the good uncle, you know, who comes alongside you. He's always like, you're doing great. You're doing great. I love you. You're doing horrible things, and it doesn't matter. Just like, keep going. I'm here for you, buddy. That's not what Jesus does, and that's not love. Jesus is the parent who sees her child do something sinful and stupid and says, hey, I love you. Now stop doing that because it will destroy you. 
Because I love you, I am asking you to stop. Believe me, the words I speak to you are life. Hear me. If you are having sex outside of marriage, Jesus commands you to stop and to repent. Whatever your sins are, if they are greed, if it is coveting, if it is anger, if it is lying, if it is gossiping, Jesus, he reaches out to you in his grace and he says, I love you. And because I love you, I don't want you to destroy yourself. Repent. Quit sinning. Now, this story is not going to make any sense to you. And it's not going to have any power in your life if you think it's a story about Jesus letting a woman off the hook. If that's what this story is about. Don't, don't think for a moment here that Jesus is just letting this woman off the hook. Any of you ever get a, a speeding ticket or run a red light, get pulled over by a cop? You know when that happens? Um, the, the moment you see those lights come on, like instant shame guilt. You're like, ah! I mean, it just, it just hits you. The cop pulls you over, and you're like, you know you were going 20 miles over the speed limit. You're like, ah, I know, you yeah. know. And he's about to write you a ticket, and then maybe he gets a call, some emergency, and he goes, well, I can't, I can't write this ticket, so I'm just going to give you a warning. Now, don't do that again. Or perhaps he sees you have, you know, four kids screaming in the back of the car, and he's like, you know, I have kids too, I understand. You know, it's just amazing you kept within the lines. You know, and just, I'm, not, I'm just going to give you a warning. Just don't do it again. And leaves. Let's you off the hook. And when that happens, once the officer is out of sight, you're like, yes. You know, like, yes. And you feel so good. Now, does that change your behavior? Does it? Do all of a sudden you now stop speeding? No. It doesn't change your behavior at all. And the reason it doesn't is because it costs that officer nothing to let you off the hook. It didn't cost him a thing. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, know that these words cost Jesus something. The only way Jesus can say to this woman that he doesn't condemn her is because Jesus will take on her condemnation. Jesus is going to be punished for her infidelity. If you, if you really want to understand this story, if you really want to apply it to your life, you need, you need to understand this, that, that when one by one, everybody walked away, they all dropped their rocks and they walked away, you need to hear that the trial was not actually over. The trial, in many ways, was just beginning because Jesus still remained. He said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Well, 2 Corinthians 5 describes Jesus as he who knew not sin. That's who Jesus is, the sinless one. 
And after all the people have left, there is still one person who is fully capable of throwing that rock. One who is capable to judge. And not not only this, but this woman who, who committed this physical act of adultery, know that she only committed this physical act of adultery because long before she had already committed the spiritual act of adultery to God. She would have never gone to the arms of another man if she had not already left the arms of God. The God who loved her, the God who created her, the God who entered into a covenant with her, she sought out the love of strangers because the love of God did not satisfy her. And so she broke that covenant. And now this adulterous woman is standing before the man she has really cheated on. And this man has every right to throw a stone at her in righteous anger. He can judge her and he could judge her harshly. So if you really want to play this out, you need to see Jesus standing before her saying, you have hurt me deeply. You have hurt me deeply. You've gone to great lengths to shame me publicly through your behavior. And I gave you life. I covenanted with you. And this is what you have done. The law demands justice for this. I demand justice for this. There needs to be a punishment. And it's not, it doesn't need to be quick. It needs to be painful. And it needs to be crushing. It needs to be violent. It needs to be humiliating after what you have done to me. And Jesus gets that rock and he looks at the woman and he says, but it will not fall on you, my bride. It will not fall on you. And he hands that rock to his father. And he says, may I be condemned in her place. Cast the rock on me that my bride might live. And then he looks at her and says, now go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. When Jesus told this woman, neither do I condemn you, it cost him something. When Jesus tells us, I do not condemn you, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, it cost him something. Now hear me, I know that in this room there are probably a number of people here, possibly all of us, who can really relate to this adulterous woman. Perhaps at this moment there are certain sins that are just flooding your mind and you're feeling exposed, shamed, condemned. Perhaps you feel judgment Judgment from your friends. Judgment from your family. Perhaps you're judging yourself. I want you to hear me and to hear me clearly. There is only one judge that matters. And that is Jesus. And his judgment is that you are not condemned. Those are the only words that matter. 
The judgment from Jesus is the only one that counts. He does not condemn you because he has taken on that condemnation for you. And in light of that sacrifice, Jesus says, now go and sin no more. And not just in light of his sacrifice. He says, now in light of my spirit which I give you, this new life that I give you, now that there is once again an intimacy between us, a restoration of an amazing relationship, now in light of this, go and sin no more. I pray that we trust these words from Jesus more than any other words we might hear this week, that we are not condemned. He was condemned in our place, and he is the one who now offers us life. Pray with me. Our Father, through your Spirit, press these truths into our hearts and minds. For those in here who feel shame and guilt right now, may that shame and guilt move to a conviction, a spirit-led conviction, to where they hear the words of no condemnation, and you give them a heart of repentance. Jesus, thank you for what you did on the cross and taking away our sin, and praise you for rising from the dead in order that we might have life in your spirit and once again an intimacy with our God. Have your way in our midst at this moment. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.